The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When I was growing up in Japan in the 50s, I had little chance, if any, to make my own decisions. I ate the food that my family gave me, and my mother chose the school I went. It was a, a Catholic school, even though my family was Buddhist. And my school chose what we wore. It was an austere black uniform from top to bottom, except the white collars, which symbolized our purity. <laughs> and the school schedule determined what time I'd wake up, what trains I'd take, and what streets I need to go to arrive at the school six days a week. Yeah, we had one month of summer vacation. And I had no choice whether, where, or how to come to America as a teenager. My new American stepfather took me out of my Japanese high school, in the senior year actually, and brought my mother and me to Minnesota because he happened to be from here. And he chose ship and car to, to, to arrive here. What do you think happens when you don't have a lot of experiences of making your own decisions? You can imagine. When I was in Zimbabwe this spring, I experienced how people's lives were really restricted due to poverty and severe political oppression by the dictator. There, people live in fear and with very little hope that things will change. And they work in poor conditions for very low wages, if, if any. A lot of people would live on subsistence and growing their own food. And they had little social security and any, no uh, representation. But still, each person seemed to make the best of their lot. And I was really touched by their kindness and friendliness. A while ago, I heard a story about Anthony Ray Hinton. Who, who knows about the story? Nobody. Anthony Ray Hinton, a black man from Alabama, wrongly accused of two murders, and he was held on death row for 28 years, confined in seven by uh, five cell for most of that time. When the freedom was denied, what choices did he have left? Like Nelson Mandela, when Hinton was released as an innocent man, he was not bitter, and he was not hopeless. How did he do that? What agency did he have in that solitary confinement for so long? He said, by the way, he wrote a book. If you're interested, you can read it. Uh, it's called... Uh, the sun does shine, how I find life and freedom on death row. 
He said he used the power of his mind, his imagination. In his mind, he married Halle Berry. <laughs> and he had blessed 15 years of marriage with her. He, he, he let go of her when she actually got married to somebody. And he visualized traveling all over the world and imagined the places and people in vivid details. When he, when he met Queen Elizabeth on one of those travels, he saw that she was as lonely as he was, trapped in the confinement of her role. So he comforted the queen in the condition of the most restrictive life he exercised the freedom of his mind and survived the incarceration for nearly three decades without bitterness. What questions do these stories ask in common? And what do they relate in any way to our practice? So, <laughs> I titled this talk <laughs> Number One Buddhist Agency. <laughs> it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek with the title of the popular books by Alexander McCall Smith, Number One Ladies <laughs> Detective Agency. Who knows that book? Um, it, it takes place in Botswana. Um, why agency? You know, when I first heard that word, the only agency I knew was State Farm Insurance Agency. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not going to talk about the insurance agency or the detective agency this morning. I'm referring to this concept of agency as our ability to make choices to act. In fact, the word act and agency share the same root, meaning someone or something that produces an effect. And sometimes people prefer to use the word power, but I like to use the word agency because it connotes our capacity to make our own free choices within the community. Power is an ability to influence or direct the behavior usually of others in the course of events. Power emphasizes control, whereas agency is about using our ability to make choices, to act. Agency is not about controlling others or an outcome. It's about our capacity to take our seat, to ground ourselves in the clarity of our intentions and make actions from it. Are you with me so far? Okay. So, of course, the idea of agency, the taking of our seat, brings up the question of self. Who makes that decision? Who takes the seat? Who makes the action? Is it self? And did the Buddha say there is no self and we should strive towards realizing no self? Actually, he didn't say that. 
He didn't say that there is no self, and he didn't say that there is self either. But we'll get back to the question of self a bit later. For now, I invite you to reflect on this question. Is liberation possible without agency, without this capacity to make choices, to act? What could, it, what could liberation without agency look like? A spontaneous and chosen enlightenment, maybe. And some people actually claim that it does happen. But for most of us, release from greed, hatred, and confusion, the deliverance of our heart and mind, is something we aspire to. And does this have something to do with you being here this morning? Did you choose to act on your aspiration to be free of suffering by coming to common ground? And I see some heads nodding. We are here because of our agency to make the decision to come. But did you think about your agency this morning? We take the role of our agency, our ability to make choices, often for granted. And especially in this country, unlike in Zimbabwe or in death row, we have incredible arrays of choices and access to resources, don't we? And especially if you're white and middle class. Joseph Goldstein, the founder of IMS, Insight Meditation Center, reminds us how seductive it is to have so much available. He said that their availabilities are the terrible bait of the world. How often do we bite the bait, suddenly feeling like we're hanging from our mouth like a fish caught on the line? Sometimes we think we make a choice once and the life will take care of the rest of it and we become complacent. I've been there. Sometimes the choices are overwhelming and we just want to avoid it. I've been there too. Sometimes having so many choices become an occasion to abdicate our responsibility to choose what is good and wholesome for us individually and collectively. <coughs> Why do we meditate is an important question that addresses our intentions and practices on our spiritual path. But we rarely ponder about our agency that bring us to our cushion each time. The concept of agency is, is particularly not a Buddhist term. In the Buddhist universe, the karma explains the freedom to choose and its limits. But karma, or kama in Pali, has many complex interrelated meanings. It means action. It could also mean the sum of one's deeds. 
It also means the spiritual principle of causes and effect, where intention and action of an individual influence the future of that individual and others. So this morning we look at them through the lens of our agency. Going back to my story of my childhood, even though I didn't have a lot of practice in making decisions as a child, once I became a single mother of three young children, I had to make a ton of choices, often in a hurry. I had no choice but to make choices. What kind of choice was that? <laughs> anyway, I thought I became good at making choices. And later, once my children grew up, I got involved with more intense study and practice of meditation, going, going to many retreats. One time, Early on in my study with my teacher, he gave a Dharma talk weaving the teaching on self, karma, and choices. At one point, he was saying that we have no choice about anything. And my ears pricked. I was shocked. My mind went, but, 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 but. And I could hardly concentrate on what he continued to talk about. And soon after this Dharma talk, I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him. And I spewed out my but, 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 but arguments. But we must have choices in making intentions. It's one of the most important choices we have, I said. And he calmly said, no. <laughs> Without explaining more. I made example after example of what I thought were convincing cases for the choices we have. And to each one, he said, no. Just simply no. You mean we really don't have any choice about anything? No, he said. <laughs> well, this, this brought me to my knees. I was lost and confused. Does that mean I had to give up my hard-won American brand freedom to choose? I spent the rest of the retreat grappling with the question of choice and no choice. And how that was related to self and not self. Every day I had the fleeting glimpse of what my teacher was pointing to. But the curtain quickly closed before I could name what I gleamed. Eventually, I connected the dots between the seeming polarity of choice and no choice, self and not self, the conditioned and the unconditioned. I understood how the self exists as a construct, nothing solid or permanent. There are decisions, but no solid decision maker. Not only we have no choice about the past causes and conditions, in the realm of the unconditioned, where not self points to, choice no longer matters. It is in the construction of self that the agency matters.
the investigation of self and the choices we make as selves is essential in coming to understand not-self and the limits of choices. So I want to check with you, do you know what I mean by relative, the, the uh, conditioned and the unconditioned and absolute? Who, who wants me to go over it? Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, huh? N- no? Huh? No. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so, rel- relative is everything that takes form. It is the world of material forms. So this embodied, whoops, life we live in, in this body, on this earth, is subject to causes and conditions, to birth and death. We need a thinking mind that creates concepts and categories to survive in this relative existence. Absolute, or the unconditioned, is that which not subject to causes and conditions. That which is not born and does not die. It is boundless. It is empty. And Joseph Goldstein said that understanding the absolute, that which is empty, helps to not tightly attach to seemingly real objects of our minds, including the sense of self. Well, there's a caveat. The absolute is not comprehensible by the cognitive mind. So it's not something we can figure out by thinking. It can be best glimpsed when the mind is not in control. If the cognitive mind thinks that it has grasped it, don't believe it. The absolute could be apprehended as a subtle felt sense, and it is not a state. Seeing things as real, as having permanent center and substance, is how the self arises. Like rainbow, this is the Joseph Gornstein's analogy, self has no essential and lasting substance. It's utterly subject to causes and conditions. Without the understanding of, this, of the absolute, it's like taking rainbow as real and substantive, when it's just the way the light reflects water particles. A rainbow is actually empty. Understanding this empty nature helps us hold our views, including the view of self, lightly. So it's very important. The conditioned relative realm and the unconditioned absolute (coughs) realm are not two separate or opposite realms. They're not polarity. They interpenetrate. We are both absolute and relative, conditioned and unconditioned. So the Buddha said that which is subject to birth is also subject to perish. So everything in the material world is subject to change. 
Change and movement are happening all the time, whether we are aware of it or not. And most of the time, we are not aware of it. From micro to macro, from an atom to galaxies, the change is happening all the time. Everything is in flux. So there's 7 billion, billion, billion atoms in the human body inside here, right? And an electron in a hydrogen atom, in one atom, traveling in 2,000-plus kilometers per second. And that's fast enough to get around the Earth in just 18 seconds. It's happening right now. And there are galaxies in motion, estimated 100 to 200 billion galaxies, and some moving 1.3 million miles per hour. It's happening right now. This very body and the sense of self also are in constant flux. The body, the self, are the culmination of all the causes and conditions from the beginning of time to now. Don't you think it's an awesome thought? <laughs> we are here because of all that. <laughs> That's, yes, we can hold all this lightly. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, if you didn't hear it, that person said, no, it's just an idea. And I, I said, thank you. We, we have to hold all this lightly. And whatever thought, speech, or action this body makes in each moment, itself becomes a cause and condition for the next moment. So as I speak in this moment, and as you, as you experience this moment, causes and conditions are being formed that affect you and me. And it's not just on the gross level of my speech, my words, <coughs> or just level of listening. The tone of my voice, the pace of my breathing, you know, you may be picking up unconsciously. <clears throat> and how I look at you or not look at you. How I hear you know or not hear you know. Um, all fold in as causes and conditions and creating more waves of more causes and conditions. So what we do, what action we make in each moment really matters. That's where our freedom comes in. That's our agency. So understanding this is really important. It's the ultimate agency. That's why it's number one Buddhist agency. <laughs> to the extent that this moment is ripening of the past causes and conditions, I have no choice. A choice <clears throat> is a culmination of the past fathomable causes and conditions. And in that sense, the self does not make the decision. 
The self is nothing but a shifting process in relation with the causes and conditions. So my teacher was attempting to chip away at my tightly held perception of self as solid and independent. He showed me that in the swirling sequences of causes and conditions, there is no I that make choice. Here's an interesting observation as I tell you that story with my teacher. Even as my teacher was trying to show this I had no choice, I still, still clearly had an agency to continue to ask him the question. And even I, as I saw that the sense of self was not solid or permanent, my sense of self didn't just melt away. And my teacher knew that. Despite the teachings on that self, Buddhism is not a fatalistic practice. We need the practices in the conditioned realm <clears throat> to get to the unconditioned. We need the sense of self to get to not self. The Buddha taught that we have agency, a free will, and we use it to become liberated. I think this is one of the most important ways we use our agency. When the causes and conditions unfolding in the moment, in the moment, when the causes and conditions unfolding in the moment are met with clear light of awareness, the momentum of the past karma quiets. And that becomes a condition for freedom. Utejaniya, a Burmese meditation teacher, teaches that awareness is not enough. In other words, observing by itself is not enough. We have to see it for what it is, beyond the self's projection, beyond the cognitive overlay. The clarity becomes the wisdom that informs us how to use our agency for the benefit of ourselves, and all beings. Well, it's easily said than done. We project and make overlay concepts all the time, even when we think we are not doing it. But some projections and concepts are necessary to function in the relative material world. They help us to stay alive in the body. So we need to know the skillfulness of our projections and when it becomes a hindrance to freedom. Again, Joseph Goldstein wrote that, quote, the great surprise that comes with deepening insight is that the self is not something in and of itself. Rather, we create the felt sense of it moment to moment. To help make sense of it, I like to use the analogy of the Big Dipper. On a clear night, we can look up at the sky and readily pick, pick it out. Though that particular pattern seems to jump out at us, in reality, there is no Big Dipper. What we see are only points of light, the distant stars, 
in a fixed relationship to one another. We then create an image and concept in our minds overlaying the experience of seeing. This points to a profound and commonplace conditioning of reifying, meaning making it real, the patterns into existence. Continuing the quote, like the Big Dipper, the self is a concept that we take for granted, but one with no intrinsic reality outside of our own mental constructs. It's easy to downplay our attachment to our conceptions, but they can be persistent. If you doubt it, go outside some night and try not to see the Big Dipper. It's not easy to do it. It's so difficult not to overlay the concept of the Big Dipper onto the night sky. Consider how much greater a challenge it is to not impose a concept of self onto our moment-to-moment experience. End of quote. So when we look up at the night sky, the mind searches for patterns because we've seen it before. Where are the three stars of the Orion's belt? Ah, here's the handle of the Big Dipper. As if the handle has always been there. And we literally see the lines that connect the dots of the stars. But there is no line in the sky. But as Joseph said, once you see it, you cannot not see it. When we see the Big Dipper, we are no longer seeing the whole of the night sky. We are seeing the cognitive overlay of our mind. Recognizing the constellation, though, has useful functions. The Big Dipper points to the Polaris, the North Star, that tells us where the true North is. And once we know the true north, then we know the south, east, and west. It's really useful knowledge, especially when GPS and and the compass were not available. And this kind of pattern recognitions, in general, help us to survive in the relative world. Absolutely. When we identify the constellations, the night sky becomes more familiar, more friendly. It's less infinite, and so it's less overwhelming. The sense of self can be useful in this very similar way. When my travel companions and I were, uh, were driving near a remote town in Zimbabwe, this spring. Once, one time we stopped the car and got out in an open field with scattered shadows of trees. And we all spontaneously looked up the sky. The sky was very dark and very, very, very vast. And the stars scattered randomly. There were no recognizable patterns of constellations and not seeing any lines that connected the stars 
I saw not only the stars, but the infinite dark space. The night was not solid. As if the concepts of the sky and constellations themselves disappeared. The shimmering stars receded in the background, and the dark space itself became the foreground. The immense luminescent dark seemed to swallow us. So with such awe, we came in direct contact with an overwhelming sense of mystery, bigger than the eyes or the mind mind could grasp. And the familiar voice whispered to me that we are looking at the stars, the sky from the southern hemisphere for the first time in our lives. And it is the same infinite sky, but viewed from a different orientation. Just as I cannot see the Big Dipper, just as I cannot not see the Big Dipper here, I cannot not hear the call of the night sky in Africa, even as I look up at the Big Dipper here. And I think that is one way we can hold the conditioned and the unconditioned. When we look up in the sky, we use our agency to know that the pattern of constellation we see is a cognitive overlay. The story we make of the sky is actually the story we make of ourselves. The celestial patterns help us to navigate where we are on this earth. Having that experience from the Southern Hemisphere helps me to hold on to the idea of Big Dipper lightly. In a similar way, (coughs) understanding the not-self, the choiceless, help us to hold the sense of self lightly and use our agency skillfully. So I invite you to use our number one Buddhist agency to look up at the night sky soon and ponder and wonder what it has to teach us. Let's sit for a moment. And let the words settle and pay attention to what's arising in you. You can open your eyes now. <laughs> Um, or you can you can keep your eyes closed. Um, any comments? Any reflections?
Okay, so the you in a gray shirt and the woman in a orange shirt after. <laughs> mm. I think it's on. Is it on? Yeah. Can you? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I had a so sometime I've I've um. I was a philosophy major in college, and <laughs> so. And then recently I've started reading, again, like the some of the Hellenistic philosophers, like the Stoics, and I have in the past sometimes uh, wondered... Put the mic closer. Closer? Okay. Yeah, you go. Okay. Yeah. Is that okay? Good. Okay. I, I'm a loud talker, so I try to... <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I've had... I remember having these thoughts like, um, boy, like... Wouldn't it be amazing if there were people like Epictetus, who's sort of my guy in the, uh, uh, you know, like still around? And then I re- and then I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> like like they oh, they are still here. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's a pretty amazing experience. Um, although I'll try not to cling to it too much. Uh, it, it's considered. Uh, I once read uh, basically uh, uh, an author uh, suggesting that it's the height of pretentiousness to reference Wittgenstein in any conversation. So here I go. Um, but it's actually, I hope it's helpful. Um, <laughs> so in uh, the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, <laughs> which is like his sort of first magnum opus, the only book he ever published, written in the trenches of World War I. He lays out this incredible like picture of sort of logic and how we categorize things in the world. And then sort of at the end, he lays out this thing like, oh, well, all of this stuff actually doesn't come to anything. And it's like a ladder. Once we've climbed up the ladder, we can throw it away. Mm. He probably wasn't the originator of this idea. But <laughs> what, what you were saying there... Um, resonated very powerfully and I thought of that in a way that it's not just I hope is not just pretentious but actually helpful so thank you uh, I'm I'm uh, you know humbled and in awe and uh, thank you so much thank you well I just wanted to express my gratitude um, the way in which you speak, Kyoko, is just so soothing and allows me to really uh, be undefended in my listening. Mm. And when you described, I don't know what's going on with the microphone, but when you described um, the conditioned and the unconditioned, these are concepts that I've certainly read about and heard about before. And you know, they're ethereal, so they disappear a little bit. I, I grasp them kind of momentarily with understanding, and then they just disappear like wisps of smoke. But I felt strangely, um, in your description, like I was able to be at ease mm. with the descriptions and have more understanding. 
And I, too, have experienced looking at the night sky from the southern hemisphere and how disorienting that was. And it was, it made me feel uh, frightened and small at the time, you know, and and you're absolutely right. And I didn't understand most of what he just said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I did understand the latter part, you know, and that I do think you're right, that um, it can be very overwhelming to be in this world mm-hmm. without patterns to make sense out of things. And I wrestled with how to be present with both the absolute and the relative simultaneously in my day-to-day life. And now I I just feel gratitude because it's like, oh, oh, that's how that works. I don't have to feel so frustrated by it now. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, first, just thank you for that really beautiful talk and it contains so much wisdom. And so I just wanted to share an insight because I ended up walking here and, you know, it's a beautiful day. You have all these pleasant feelings and emotions and there are real good reasons why. But when you talked about no self, one thing that came to mind is that, and you know, you think about the emotions that we have. Oftentimes we heap stories onto certain emotions in the same way, which reproduce a certain conception of self. Or say when we get up in the morning, we do activities to reaffirm this certain way of a self. And so the way you kind of um, broke down, you know, the self, no self, and then moving out of that binary um, was just really kind of profound. And it answered just a whole lot of questions that I've been grappling with over the past few days. So I just want to thank you for that. And um, you mentioned some part in your talk with the Buddha said about agency. Did he say, what did he say about agency? I miss, I don't know how that came down. He didn't use the word agency. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He, he, I, 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 I can't, do you know a particular sutta? I mean, he, he clearly said we have choice in this moment of, of going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry I can't refer yeah. to a particular sutta. No. Yeah. But that was like really beautiful. So thank oh, you for that. Yeah. yeah. We don't think about Buddha saying something like that, right? But yeah. yeah. But he did talk about liberation, which Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Freedom. Little tiny one and a big one. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you for the talk as well. I'm Dan. Um, one of my little, or not so little, side hobbies is I, I like to uh, contemplate and read about quantum physics and the underlying things beyond, you know, below that. And I, it's it's both just in some ways terrifying, just it's so complex, and, and in other ways very beautiful. But there's two groups uh, on how they of thinkers about how it's seen seen, and there's the materialist who. Mm-hmm who tend to st- structure this, and there's the non-materialist or the consciousness people who, who say it's just so much more complicated and there's other things we, that are there that we can't really grasp. And as I've contemplated that, I've discovered primarily through my meditation, I think, that the whole argument is a bit of a red herring, and that is that as I've 
just learned uh, to be with the moment in the deepest ways. In fact, I just had it yesterday. It's it's it, that's a reality unto itself. It takes it has a richness to it uh, that it it takes those concerns away and presents. Um, I guess I lack the poetry, but presents the fullness of that. And so, in hearing you talk about, you know, the things that you've talked about, I'm, I guess I've learned through meditation that uh, the the being the being is um, is it really it, to me it strikes me as the reality, and and how the other things are really interesting but they can subtract from the being there in ways that uh, really aren't all that productive. So just yeah. kind of throwing that out there. So Ultimately, it's the direct experience. Right, yeah, exactly. And he's very pragmatic. He said, you know, it's, he, he, he didn't answer to the question, is there a self or is there no self? He, mm-hmm. he declined all of these categorical questions, you know, about what is this. Mm-hmm. He said, what helps you to be free from suffering? Right. Yeah. You know, with all the sort of the magnanimous orchestration of it all, we just have so many limitations. To say to speak the obvious, and whatever helps us pragmatically deal with that is is fine. But there there's something more than knowing mm-hmm. that of just the pure existence. So it's kind of my two cents worth. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. I think it's. Time. Uh, we have announcements. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.